Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm Mary Walshock. I'm Associate Vice Chancellor at UCSD, and it's my pleasure to welcome all of you to this opening evening of The Atlantic Meets the Pacific. This is really an exciting new program for this region, and I'd like to believe for the nation. And it is uh, being co-presented this year by UC San Diego and The Atlantic Magazine. For many years, a number of us, and many of you are in this room, will remember how we brainstormed how we might create a forum that would draw leadership from across the United States to the San San Diego region, not only to enrich our conversations, and that's going to happen for the next two, two days, but also to make the wonders of this place more visible to uh, media and corporate and foundation leadership around the country. And we'd like to believe that that's another benefit of this event. We found a perfect partner in the Atlantic. I met Elizabeth Keffer, who is uh, the vice president for events, and she and I really hit it off in a bar in Washington, D.C. And... uh, I uh, was told by a mutual friend, Vivian Warren, who many of you will remember from La Jolla uh, for many, many years, that Elizabeth was the energy uh, behind the very successful Aspen Ideas Festival and Washington Ideas Festival, that it was the partnership between the Atlantic and those two organizations that made things work. And as you can see tonight, that partnership has worked. We really want to thank our underwriters. I don't know, many of you are our guests this evening and friends of friends, and we really are able to do this because of the two major program underwriters we have, Chevron and Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. This program, good. (laughs) And we have representatives from both companies here, throughout uh, the event, and I hope you'll get to know them and tell them how wonderful it was. (laughs) So we have a terrific roster of journalists and national technology leaders. There'll be lots of good conversation, and we owe a special note of thanks to Pete Ellsworth, who is the CEO of the locally-based Benbow Foundation. They're underwriting all of the media coverage. So that's, that's it. Keep eating your salads. <laughs> but I just, in sum, uh, I am a university person, but there's nothing more wonderful for a community than good conversation and big ideas that we can take home and uh, utilize in our everyday lives as well as in our business and our professional careers. We really believe that the kind of innovation profile that this region has and all of California has merits uh, a more lively conversation with the national media and with national leaders. And that's what The Atlantic Meets the Pacific is about. So I hope you're going to have a very enriching experience. And I welcome you, but I also have the pleasure of introducing a new Californian. I'm already trying to convert his daughter, who's at the University of Florida, to come to UCSD. Um, Joe Holsinger is the managing director of Merrill Lynch Wealth Management, and he's going to add his words of welcome. Thank you. 
Thank you, Mary. Uh, actually, on behalf of Maryland's Wealth Management, uh, I am delighted to be here in California. In spite of this, uh, this weather, I love the weather and I love the people that I've met here so far. Um, and this event that we have here truly, um, I think, is going to represent a unique experience over the next two to three days for all of us. We're particularly proud to be associated with The Atlantic, uh, one of the most highly respected forward-thinking publications in the country. And it's our privilege to be the exclusive financial services underwriter for this inaugural event. As Mary had mentioned, the next few days we are expected to hear in-depth discussions and debates from noted experts where we'll examine innovations and growth opportunities along three industries, technology, energy, and healthcare. We'll also have a glimpse into the not-too-distant future where we'll discover developments that will change the way we and our children live and work in the years to come. We're pleased that Merrill Lynch can serve as an ambassador and a facilitator for such innovative uh, forums. And as we expand on our commitment to providing thought leadership for our clients and for the world, we've launched a website which is focused exclusively on innovation, ml.com slash innovation. So in addition to the content from this event, throughout the year we'll feature new insights, perspectives, and research. We'll highlight opportunities of innovation that create opportunity within the economy, as well as for investors. And so I invite you to visit ml.com slash innovation frequently in the months and years to come. So on behalf of our firm and of all my colleagues that are here, I want to thank you uh, for being a part of this exclusive event. Wish you a wonderful evening, and I hope you have a great time this week. Thank you very much. Uh, I am Jay Loff. I'm the vice president and publisher of The Atlantic. And uh, on behalf of my colleagues and our uh, partners at the University of California, San Diego, uh, welcome to the inaugural uh, The Atlantic Meets the Pacific program. We're delighted to have you uh, with us here. Uh, we are privileged tonight to have uh, with us Elon Musk, um, whose bio I think uh, many of you know, but we'll elaborate that on, uh, on that in a moment. Um, and to lead the conversation, um, we're equally delighted to have a, uh, a man whose career, his own career, uh, really has been as, um, as uh, successful and, and varied as, as Mr. Musk's in, in many, many ways, uh, my colleague uh, Jim Fallows. Uh, many of you in this room probably know... And from that applause, I'll take it that you do know uh, that, that Jim is, uh, is one of really the most uh, decorated and respected journalists in America um, today. He's the national correspondent for The Atlantic. He has been with us, um, we're grateful to say, for, uh, for 25 years uh, with The Atlantic, reporting on really a variety of subject matter from, uh, from world affairs to macroeconomics, politics, uh, and, and technology. Uh, and really from all over the world, uh, in the East and West, at various points uh, along the way for the Atlantic, he's been deployed in uh, Washington, D.C., Berkeley, uh, Austin, Texas, uh, Tokyo, Kuala Lumpur, uh, Shanghai, and most recently and, and famously maybe Beijing, uh, where up until uh, last year, Jim, or a year and a half ago, 
uh, for four years was reporting back from Beijing and really, I, I think, has elevated himself into the position of uh, a must-read to really understand China's um, place in the, in the world today. Before the Atlantic, I, uh, just to give you a little bit of Jim's background, um, he spent two years as the chief um, White House correspondence, uh, excuse me, White House uh, speechwriter for Jimmy Carter. Uh, for two years after that, as the editor in chief of uh, U.S. News and World Report, he squeezed a six-month stint in there on technology as a uh, program designer for Microsoft, uh, if you will. In between that, uh, right, exactly. So obviously, a vast and varied career before joining um, us. Uh, he is the uh, current chairman and has been since 1999 uh, of the board for the American um, uh, New America Foundation. Uh, Jim has been nominated for five National Magazine Awards, which is the Oscars of our industry. He has won one of those. He's won an American uh, Book Award for nonfiction, um, and the list goes on and on. And in his copious spare time, he's also an instrument-rated um, pilot. So I have a feeling he shares with our um, conversation partner today a, a, a love of things that fly and move fast, and, uh, and maybe you'll explore that. So without any further ado, I'll turn it over to Jim. Thank you, Jim. The theme we're going to explore in the next two plus days involves confluence of various kinds, of science, of pure science and technology, and commerce and innovation and public policy and the human condition and culture and, and all, all the rest. And we have a gentleman to uh, lead this off who epitomizes in the uh, spectacular and uh, so far brief career he's had, a variety of different um, interests that he's been able to meld, and maybe, what we'll, maybe we'll hear there's a unified field theory behind it, but at least we'll, we'll have different ones. I'm going to take a minute to read a few of Elon Musk's uh, achievements just as background for the kind of variety and breadth that he brings to this conversation. Uh, he's now the CEO and product architect of Tesla Motors and also the CEO, CTO of Space Exploration Technologies, SpaceX, which had, of course, its, its wonderful launch a little more, when was that, two years ago? When was it a year? And, the Falcon 9? Falcon 9 is what I'm thinking yeah, of. Yeah, Falcon 9, uh, we did two launches last year, um, yeah. And it was, it was in recognition of the Falcon 9 that I served as Mr. Musk's mini-biographer a year ago. <laughs> we had our, our annual Brave Thinkers issue for the Atlantic, so I got to do a brief Q&A with you about all the various things. Um, you're also the, uh, the non-executive chairman and principal shareholder of Solar City, which is now the leading provider of solar power systems in the U.S. And, of course, uh, among other things, in your spare time, you were the co-founder of, of, of PayPal. Um, there are... I will just give one or two other uh, accolades and then get on to the, the conver conversation that in 2009, the National Space Society awarded our guest, Mr. Musk, their Von Braun Trophy, given for leadership of the most significant achievement in space. And in 2010, he was the youngest recipient of the Auto Executive of the Year Innovator Award for his work at Tesla Motors. And so... <laughs> and and we'll, have, we'll have one more and then we'll get to, to actual questions, which is there are other publications in the universe apart from the Atlantic Monthly. One of them is, is Time. It's a younger publication than we are. They're about 80 years old. We're 154 and, and counting. But the, the Time 100 for 2010, you were a, a member of that. So with that background, we have a few minutes to explore a whole variety of topics about... Um, the business histories of the various enterprises you've been involved in, about the frontiers of energy and transportation and the sky and the land, about the process of innovation, the U.S. environment for, for making these discoveries. But let me just start. Most of us are wondering how you could possibly have been involved in so many different fields 
uh, and be pushing the frontiers of all of them. How did you end up being in PayPal and space exploration yeah. and solar power and all the rest? How did you get here? Sure. Well, well some of that was serial. Um, so I, I did a, 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 an internet company that most people haven't heard of called Zip2, which helped uh, bring uh, the newspapers online. Um, the news, newspapers weren't always online, uh, uh, but, the, but uh, my company helped bring, uh, helped help with the New York Times and Hearst and Night Road and a few other things. And, uh, and then with the capital from that, I started uh, it, uh, PayPal, which was originally called X.com. Um, and, uh, and then uh, from the capital of that, uh, it, it allowed me to start uh, SpaceX, um, Tesla, and, uh, and, and SolarCity. Um, so, uh, and I didn't, I, I didn't actually, I didn't expect to be running SpaceX and Tesla, but um, I kind of had the choice, choice of either let Tesla die or, or um, run it personally. And so I, I didn't want to let it die. Um, uh, so I, I, I stepped in and run personally. But I have to say it's quite difficult running two companies at the same time. I don't want to make it sound like this is easy. It's really difficult. <laughs> and, and was it planned all along that you would get into all, this whole range of fields, or yes, was that opportunistic, actually, as it turned out? Uh, no, it, it, it was actually, well, planned is maybe um, aspirational. Um, so when I, uh, when I was in college, there were three areas that I thought would, would most affect the future of humanity um, in, in a positive way. Um, and... But, but I, thought, I, was th I thought of these in the abstract, not, not from the standpoint I would actually be able to be involved in those three areas. But th those were uh, the, the internet, uh, sustainable energy, uh, both production and consumption. Uh, te Tesla's about production, uh, te sorry, solar city's about production, Tesla's about consumption of energy in a sustainable way. And then the third is uh, making life multiplanetary. Um, and uh, I, I really didn't think I'd be involved in the third one. Um, but it, but, it, but it did seem to me that's one of the really important things that should happen um, if, if we're to have an exciting and inspiring future. And, and let me, you said something which caught my attention, that, that when you were in college and developing these skills, you wanted to do some things that were of benefit to humanity. Why, yeah. why did you think that? Well, because not um, everyone does. Yeah, no, uh, I, I guess it was, uh, I, I had sort of an existential crisis uh, of like, what does it all mean and what's the meaning, you know, what's the meaning of life and um, was this 3 a.m. over a beer, or this was well, more uh, serious? Probably goes back to, to high school, I guess. Uh, um, I don't want to give a laboriously long answer, but uh, I was, uh, I, yeah, I had sort of a dark childhood. It wasn't good. <laughs> um, probably partially brought on by, by, by reading some of the philosophers, like, D don't ever read Schopenhauer and Nietzsche if you're 14. It's, <laughs> it's not good. Yeah, or, or Ayn Rand, either. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so um, I was just trying to find, figure out what you know, what does it all mean? And um, um, actually, uh, when I read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I think is a great work of philosophy, um, that, that, that sort of highlighted the point that uh, very often the, the issue is understanding what questions to ask, and if you can properly frame the question, then the answer is the easy part. Um, so I thought. Uh, things that uh, expand the scope and scale of the human consciousness um, and allow us to better ask questions and, you know, and, and, and achieve greater enlightenment, those are good things. And so that's sort of what, what, what can we do that's going to um, most likely lead to that outcome? Um, and so obviously we, we have to... You know, the, the Internet is an important element to that because the Internet is like, uh, it's like the world acquiring a nervous system. Um, all of a sudden... 
Um, you can be anywhere. If you have an internet connection, you, you have access to the cumulative knowledge of humanity. It's pretty incredible. Um, I mean, you have more access to more information than the Library of Congress um, through your iPhone. I want to be part of, yeah. you know, we'll just put a small brick in, in, in the construction of that, that edifice. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's, that's why the internet and then sustainable energy because, well, tautologically, huh, if it's not sustainable, we're, we're going to hit a wall. Um, and um, e- even if one considers the environmental issues to be uh, non-existent, in fact, you could say, for the sake of argument, uh, that CO2 is beneficial. Let, let's assume it's beneficial. Um, I, I, by the way, I think that would be a bad assumption. Uh, all, all respect to Chevron. Um, uh, the, the, uh, um, the, and then even if you assume that the United States has every drop of oil in the world, well, we still need to get off oil eventually uh, because what will happen is that scarcity will drive the price up, leading to economic collapse. Um, and so my, my interest in, in, in electric vehicles goes back to, to college. Uh, before uh, global warming became a, a, a real issue, um, and uh, uh, so, uh, and, and but I think I think the environmental issues do add additional urgency to, to the matter. It's simply unwise to run an experiment um, on uh, how much CO two the the, ocean, the oceans and atmosphere can absorb. Yes, as, as yes. Um, let me ask one other question about again you and how you got to this this point in life. One reason people read biographies of accomplished people is to get more clues, more data points on how it happened, what, what the, the, uh, the steps were uh, along, along the road. Many people come out of college and can't find a job. You've been invented several entire new, new industries or, or companies. What do you think made you the way you are, and what can be extrapolated? Could other people learn from your example to date? Um, I, you know, I, th- I, th- I think I need to sort of put some thought into that and say what, what lessons can be drawn, um, because I'm so usually in, in the thick of things that, that it's... That I'm, I, don't, I haven't really put a lot of time into abstracting what, what lessons can be most helpful. But um, I mean, the way I tend to view problems is, is from, a, from a physics standpoint. I, mean, I, think, I think physics is a good analytical framework. Um, and uh, one of the key things in, in, in physics is to reason from first principles. Um, this is contrary to the way most human reasoning takes place, which is by analogy. Um, Reasoning from first principles just means that you, you figure out what, what are the fundamental what, what are the fundamental truths or or things that are pretty sh- people are pretty sure are fundamental truths, and and can you build up to a conclusion from from that uh, or, you know from, from those principles, and, um, uh, and and then certainly if you come up with some idea and it appears to violate one of those fundamental truths, then you're probably wrong. Um, or you should get a really big prize or something like that. Um, so uh, this may seem like, I don't know, it may, be, may seem sort of obvious when it's explained, but it's actually not what people do. Um, you, reasoning by analogies is helpful because it's a shortcut. Yeah. Um, and, and, it's, and it's mostly correct, but, but uh, it tends to be most incorrect when you're dealing with new things because it's hard to analogize to something really new. Let me now shift to the areas where your businesses are now operating. You have a solar, solar power company, obviously. You have the electric cars, and you have space. And so let's talk about each, each of those areas. Give us, if you would, what you think the potential of solar power is and your general, you were making your point about the importance of addressing sustainability energy, what, how you think people should think about energy now. 
about solar energy and more broadly? Sure. Well, I, I think um, I, I think solar solar power will be the the single biggest source of electricity, uh, um, at least in the United States, by the midpoint of the century. Um, and that, that may seem like a, a bold statement given the tiny percentage that it generates right now, which is on the order of sort of 1%, or less, less than 1%, really. Um, but if you look at the growth rate of solar, that, that's where it's going gonna, it's gonna to go. This um, compound growth is incredibly powerful. Um, and, uh, but I think anything we can do to accelerate that, that growth is, is a good thing um, because it means we'll have power as long as the sun shines. And if the sun doesn't shine, we have larger issues. Um, uh, so, so I think that, that's a good way to go. Um, and, and actually, the, the Earth is almost entirely solar-powered today. Uh, the, 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 I mean, the only reason we're, we're not a frozen ice ball at around 4 Kelvin, maybe 3 Kelvin, is, is because of the sun. And the, the, so all the precipitation, the weather system... Um, Almost everything is solar powered. The, the ecosystem is is solar powered, um, and uh, you know, so so it's really just about taking a little bit of that that solar power and turning that into electricity, which uh, people could use. And is there a way to explain concisely, in terms I might understand, the concept that Solar Cities is applying that will make it successful in a way that previous solar projects have not been? Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, first of all, I should say that most people don't realize how much. Uh, the, the cost of solar panels has dropped. Um, they, they, they used to be about $4 uh, a watt uh, five years ago. They're now about a buck twenty. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a huge drop. Um, and, and, and there's obviously this, this sort of threshold where uh, when, when solar power is cheaper than conventional electricity, that, that's a massive inflection point. And, and, and electricity costs vary across the country. So you'll see it's, it's, it starts to be better in some places than a small number of places, then a medium, then eventually uh, most, most places, right? which I think is what, what, what will occur. And I'm not saying solar power will be, the, be everything, but it, it'll just, I think it'll probably be at least a plurality, maybe a majority by the mid, midpoint of the century. Um, and, and most of what solar city specifically is focused on is actually balance of systems. Solar city, solar city does not make the panel. Um, solar city is um, it's kind of like, say, Apple or Dell, where they, they design the system appropriate to a particular uh, house or, or office, and um, they'll do the installation, wiring, the, the inverter, uh, permitting, and after-sales service, which is about 70% of the cost. And, and since I've come from D.C. only today, where any discussion of solar involves solyndra scandal, right. government policy, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> what, what should the government be doing, if anything, about solar now? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the Slendra thing is, is somewhat overblown. It's obviously become political football, but not, not a very good one. I think, I think Republicans should pick up, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sort of moderate, sort of half, half Republican, half Democrat, if you will, but um, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle. I, I guess I'm so, sort of socially liberal and fiscally conservative, uh, which I think a lot of the country is, actually. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, uh, but, but the, the thing is that if you look at Slendra, the specific case Slendra, um, Private investors lost twice as much as the government, mm-hmm. and and the the investors, the venture capitalists that were involved in Solyndra are some of the smartest venture capitalists out there. They're not they're not fools, so um, it's difficult to say the government was a fool um, if if you've got some of the best venture capitalists in there in, investing in it at all. It's just uh, startups are it's a bit of a numbers game, you know. Right. Um, uh, typically, in, in, in Silicon Valley, venture capitalists, if they invest in twenty companies, one or two will be a big hit, maybe. 
three or four will be okay, and the, and the rest will not make it. Um, but, but that's the way it works. Uh, it's, 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 so so it's, 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 I don't think it makes sense to, 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 for, for the media to be so focused on Solyndra. Um, there, there will be other failures too, by the yes. way. Not, right. yeah. and, and, and is there anything, briefly, that the government is doing right now that, that is either helping or hindering your work at SolarCity? Well, probably both, I suppose. Uh, but, but I think probably, on balance, more helpful than, than hurtful. Um, and certainly, um, you know, the case of SpaceX, uh, a lot of credit goes right. to NASA, uh, where, I mean, SpaceX wouldn't have been able to get started, and, and nor would it have gotten to where it is today without the help of NASA. Right. Um, so this is uh, very much a sort of a partnership on that, on, on that front. Um, and then uh, with, with Solar, Solar City, um, the Solar City actually doesn't get... Gets gets a, a little bit on the federal side and a little bit uh, on, on the in certain states in terms of subsidies for for solar. But those subsidies are actually uh, actually relatively small these days. They're they're not not very big. Um, they, they used to be big, but then they've been declining every year. Um, and then the big challenge for solar cities, of course, to provide um, unsubsidized power at at, mm-hmm. at better than grid grid costs. Uh, that's that's sort of the holy grail there. Um, and then, of course, uh, sorry, uh, Tesla has received a, a loan from, yes. from the government. Um, it's part of why I get these cylinder questions. Uh, <laughs> um, it, but actually, Solar City, I'm uh, sorry, Tesla has also raised about twice as much yeah. from the private sector as from the government. And, <clears throat> you know, if, if Tesla is to compete effectively uh, against uh, GM, Ford, Chrysler, and, and, and others, um, and those guys are getting massive amounts of money from the government and, and at, at near zero cost of capital, and, and, and we don't participate in that game, uh, it makes it a very difficult job even harder. And so it just wouldn't, it would be sort of really unwise if we, if we didn't do that. And let's talk now about the electric car business itself. Uh, what should people expect in terms of the technological improvements that, that are ahead of how much of a difference this will make in energy consumption and environmental impact in patterns of life? How, how should we think about this? Um, well, actually, on electric cars, I actually think that, that um, electric vehicles will be um, a majority of all new cars manufactured in about 20 years will be pure electric. Um, and 20 years after that, I expect the vast majority of cars on the road to be pure electric. It, t- it takes sort of at least sort of 15 years-ish mm-hmm. uh, to uh, replace the existing fleet. Um, and uh, so that's another prediction. I, ho- hopefully, I live to see the truth or, or you know, falseness of that. Um, but in terms of how I think it'll affect things, I, I, think, I think that the transportation experience will, will become better. Um, and, and most people haven't driven an electric car or, or used one day to day. Um, but but it, it's actually really nice not having to go to a gas station. Uh, sorry, sorry, Chevron. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, I don't mean to... Uh, they are diversifying, too, as yeah, time no, goes on. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know Chevron's doing, doing a lot of good things, uh, so I, I, I don't mean to be negative on that front. Um, uh, so, so I think with the Model S in particular that's coming out in July of next year, um, the, that, that's where we hope to show that an electric car can actually be uh, superior to mm-hmm. a gasoline car um, in terms of... Uh, of how, how much usable space you get in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the Model S is about the same external dimensions as, say, a Mercedes uh, E-Class or, or BMW 5 Series, but it has twice the, the luggage capacity. 
um, and it can actually seat uh, up to up to five adults plus two two kids in a rear-facing uh, seat, kind of like the old station wagons. Um, and it it'll have a range of over 300 miles. Um, you can charge uh, charge charge in about 45 minutes. You can swap the battery pack out faster than you can fill a gas tank. Um, and it will have the highest safety rating of, of any car in the world. It will be five-star in every category. Uh, and, in fact, it will be the only car that's five-star in every category by 2012 standards. So it will be the safest car you could buy. And its cost would be order of magnitude what? Um, well, look, it's one to $2 million. So it's a great deal. Uh, uh, but for you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, no, it's 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 actually priced at the it's at the same same price as, as uh, other premium sedans. So it's yeah. about hmm. uh, fifty fifty thousand dollars starting price, and then it goes up to yeah. about a hundred thousand dollars for the high performance version with all the options. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and actually, when you factor in the, the, that uh, gasoline is much more expensive than electricity per mile, it's about ten times more expensive. Wow. Uh, when you factor in those cost savings, um, it's it's almost like a Anywhere from a ten to twenty thousand dollar discount off the price. Hmm. And so, one other question on electric cars: Is the challenge between now and the future you're describing mainly an engineering challenge, or is there a science challenge that's still left? Um, I think it's mostly an engineering challenge. Um, there's some. There, there is a science challenge potentially in the um, uh, high energy density capacitors. Um, and, and in fact, um, what originally brought me out to California was I was going to do grad studies at Stanford uh, um, to try to develop uh, a high energy density capacitor that c- could serve as an, electric, an energy storage mechanism in electric vehicles. Um, I, I think, uh, now I wasn't sure that success was one of the possible outcomes, um, <laughs> but, but now I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that, uh, that it, it could work. Um, and, and there's definitely some interesting science there. Um, it, it could, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I'm going to ask you, um, a question about space and then a question about American policy before I invite a few questions from, from the crowd. A question on space. For Americans of my vintage, which is uh, tragically older than, than your vintage, space was very romantic in the time when I was a kid and we were having uh, you know, the race to the moon, and it's become routine, and, and you don't find uh, children seemingly excited in space. Why are you fascinated with space? Why should people care about it? Right. Um, well, I think part of the, the problem, the reason people aren't as excited about space is that we haven't been pushing the frontier as much. Um, and so you can, only, you can only watch the same movie so many times and it, before it gets a little boring. Um, and, you know, in, in, the, in the 60s and early 70s, we were really pushing the frontier of, of human spaceflight. Um, and, uh, and, and obviously, those land, landing on the moon is regarded as one of the greatest achievements of humanity, of, of arguably of life itself. Um, and, and even though only a handful of people went to the moon, vicariously, we all went there. Well, at least I wasn't alive at the time, so, but retrospectively. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it, was, it was just one of those really inspiring things that I think make, made everyone glad to be uh, you know, human. You know, it's like the things that we... We're, we don't, they're, they're bad things, humanity is, and they're, they're good things, and, and this is one of the good things. Um, and I, I do think it's important that, that we have these inspiring things that uh, uh, make you glad to get up in the morning and, um, and, that, that, uh, and, and, and glad to be a member of the human race. Uh, and, and, and we need to, we need to push that, that, that frontier. Um, so, um, and, and I think uh, the, the great goal we should be trying to pursue is trying to make life, huma- uh, make, make life multi-planetary. Mm-hmm. So to, to establish a self-sustaining and growing uh, civilization on another planet 
uh, Mars being the only realistic possibility. Um, and, uh, and I think that would just be one of the greatest things humanity could ever try to do. Um, you know, it, you know, life's been on Earth for four billion years, yeah. um, and it's been, it's been confined to Earth for four, for four billion years. And, and so it, I, think, I, I think most people want a future where we're headed towards being a space-faring civilization. We're going out there exploring the stars, and, 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 and we want to be on a path to making true the things that we read in, in science fiction books and see in the, in the movies. And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's an exciting future. Uh, but a future where we are forever confined to Earth until some eventual extinction event is less inspiring. <laughs> you should be a journalist. This is how all our stories turn out. Uh, and how much of this, if, if the space part of your visions and collective visions goes as well as you expect, how much do you expect actually to see yourself? Setting aside any life extension experiments you may come up with, but <laughs> right. what, what, what do you think is feasible in the next half century, in the next century? Um, well, I think I actually think it's. I think well. Um, I, I don't want to get too too far ahead of ourselves with SpaceX, but but I I, I think we uh, could potentially send someone to Mars uh, as soon as ten years, and I'd be disappointed if it took us longer than twenty. Um, but then, then going beyond that, what, what's important is not to to sort of have a flags and footprints mission, but to develop the technologies that that could allow people to move to Mars if they wanted to. Um, and I think that that threshold number for um, wh- where people, where you'd, it would become kind of a self-sustaining reaction is around half a million dollars. So, so that's the, really the key question. Can you get it down to where the cost of moving to Mars plus enough to get going is equivalent to a middle-class house in California? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because then you can like sell your stuff and move, right? And then, okay. that's, that's how people came here to start right. with. Yeah, right. That's true. How my parents came here. Yeah. Uh, I think that's possible. Uh, I wasn't sure it was possible. I wouldn't. In fact, I'm still not 100 percent sure it's possible. But um, I, 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 but I now think I think it is possible. Uh, basic, I have a basic architecture and design in mind that I think could accomplish that. Yeah, in in that time frame. I have one more question to ask you, and then I'll turn it over for uh, questions from the crowd. You've given us now almost half an hour of really inspiring and encouraging things to think about, that most of our power will come in these, uh, from the, these solar installations, that most of the cars will be running for uh, a tenth the mile, cost per mile, that will be uh, going to Mars in 10, 10 or 20 years. Yeah. Um, you, you must have, have noted that the prevailing mood in the U.S. right now is not quite that, that I know, encouraged. I people are too negative, really. Uh, you know, and, and, and it's so, like people like to lighten up a little, I think, honestly. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, one... <laughs> but but it's, my, it's my duty, of course, to press on the scab of, of, uh, of, of optimism or the scab of pessimism, which is that, that, that for example... Scab if, of optimism, jeez. <laughs> How about the, the, the festering sore of pessimism? Okay. I can say that, 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 that many of the fundamentals that have made Americans successful in research over the years seem to be less invested in now than in the future. We still have people coming from around the world like you to make this the arena for their, their talents, which is America's greatest asset in my view. But universities are having troubles, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think on the objective merits, how do you think about America's position right now as an arena for the kind of innovation you're discussing? Uh, sure. Well, actually, you know, she mentioned my, my grandfather was American, and I was named after my great-grandfather, who was from Minnesota. That's where my name comes from. It's 
not, not at all exotic. So I'm really returning to my ancestral homeland uh, by coming back to the U.S. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that um, I think there are actually lots of reasons to to be uh, optimistic and uh, and that life is actually pretty good, you know. But um, and if I if I may criticize the media a little bit here, um, um, and actually not not so much the um, um, magazine media. I think magazine media is actually. Pretty, pretty good, but good I think choice. That the, the, yeah, <laughs> the, the 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 daily news media um, tends to focus on the worst thing occurring in the world at any given point. It it is like uh, if if you know you know the world. There's there's know, almost seven billion people or something like that on Earth. You can imagine that the seven billion thing is pretty awful. Okay, it's yeah. really bad. Um, and 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 if you, but if you look at your Google news page or whatever it is, you, you'll see um, a spotlight on. Uh, the worst thing on earth. So it's, it should be called, what is the worst thing on earth today? That's... <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yes. It's terrible. Um, no, I, I think it's, it's... I mean, daily news media is probably to blame, but I think also there's something in the psyche of... Uh, the, uh, the human psyche which tends to place a weight on negative stuff more than positive. I mean, you, you want to react faster to the lion that's going to eat you rather than <laughs> dinner's on the table. Yeah. Um, you know, be, being dinner is, wor- is, is going to get a worse than having dinner. Um, so, uh, so e- even though that the, the news that you're reading is, you know, probably doesn't affect you directly, and it's somewhere else in the world, it's yeah. it still it still has that sort of negative um, visceral reaction. Um, I know I'm not quite sure how that that problem gets solved, but. Um, I, I do think the mood ought to improve um, because it's it's not it's out of sync with with the reality. Life life is really pretty good. You, you've you've made a good case for that. Now we have time for a couple of questions. I'm going to turn to uh, to Mary for the responsibility to choose questioners. Yeah, yeah, you got to choose. Yes, among your your friends and colleagues here. Uh, Elon, if I might ask you, uh, you know, you guys are talking pretty lightheartedly about things are actually pretty good, but I think it's fair to say everyone in the room is aware that. Uh, a lot of people, many of those billions of people, they don't have proper food, they don't have proper shelter, they don't have proper clothing, uh, they don't get educated around the world. And, you know, we're talking rather glibly about perhaps making interplanetary uh, journeys to the moon or the Mars. I'm just wondering, well, how about taking some of this, uh, you know, effort and really trying to devote it to solving these very intractable problems here on Earth before we worry about going to the moon or going to Mars? Um, well, I don't think it's an either-or thing. And I should maybe clarify that, you know, in terms of um, making life multiplanetary, which you can sort of view as, as kind of life insurance for life collectively, um, I, I think, you know, we should spend a lot say much less than we'd spend on healthcare, but more than we spend on lipstick. You know, that's kind of like maybe a good way to bracket it. Um, and so maybe, maybe and I, I'm not, I like lipstick, you know. Uh, <laughs> but but, but uh, uh, maybe a quarter of a percent of the GDP. So it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's um, I think that's maybe a, a good number. Um, now, I mean, as far as the, the rest of the world is concerned, I, I think, um, I mean, in fact, there, there was a good uh, uh, if, I think fire, fire. Well, actually, I, I, I read an article recently. I don't remember who wrote it, but it was called "A History of Violence," um, and, and that you know we're actually at this incredibly non-violent period in history. So, if, if one of the metrics you'll use is like how much violence is there in the world, we're at this ridiculously low violence period. Um, the probability in, um, of, of someone in the world 
dying, for, dying from uh, war or, or, or some, some violent event is extremely low, at the lowest it's ever been in history. That's, that's a reason to be positive. Um, and if you look at uh, uh, um, most countries in the world that, that we used to consider to be, uh, I guess, poor, I mean, like, say, in India or, or China, um, they've made massive strides. Um, that, that's, a, I suppose, a good and a bad thing. It's, it's it's good, obviously primarily good, but it also means that there are a lot of more resources that, that, that get used. Um, you know, China is now putting more new cars on the road than, than the U.S. is. Um, but still, it's, it's, it's a good thing overall. Um, so so I, 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 I wouldn't think of the rest of the world as not improving. I think, I think it actually it is improving. Um, one may be unhappy with the rate of improvement, but it certainly is, it, it is improving. Um, and uh, you know, there's this, this, this still issues... Um, in, 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 in lots of parts of the world, but, they, but they're, they're going in the right direction. They're not getting worse, except in a, a few exceptional cases. Um, and, and, and where those are exceptional cases, they tend to be more driven by uh, corrupt government or, or civil war than, than um, technology problems. So, but, you know, it's sort of unfashionable these days to sort of go and take out some... Well, I guess maybe it's not that unfashionable um, to, to take out uh, dictators of other countries. Um, so I'm not sure what I could do, you know, in that, in, in that thing. It's like I, I don't think these are technology problems, for the, for the, you know. And, and to clarify one thing you said that, that I, I, I think should be clarified, you're a person with great success in life, and you're not saying, oh, life is good for me. You're arguing that no, life is better for precisely. most people than most, we usually appreciate. Be, better for the vast majority of people in the world. It, I mean, it's difficult to bat a thousand on, on, you know, everywhere all the time, but, but the vast majority of people in the world, life, life is, is, is good. Exactly. I don't know if... Life is great for me. Mary, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Hi, Elon. So I had the opportunity to tour your factory, which is brand new and, and amazing. And I noticed that while um, your cars are battery-driven, and that's great, it's also that the entire frame of the car is made of aluminum. Correct. Uh, and I was wondering how you made that choice, and maybe we should, should we build all cars with alum- an aluminum frame? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think aluminum is, is the best choice of material um, it, it, because um, with, with the Model S, we wanted to achieve an extremely high safety rating um, but not make the car super heavy because then if it's... So, so the problem with, with if you use steel is, is that it ends up being... You, either, you can either make it heavy and safe or light and unsafe, um, like either of those alternatives, uh, and, and so hence the use of aluminum. Um, it is it is a little harder to work with aluminum. It's harder to join and, and, and so forth. But um, since in, in the aerospace industry, like you know, people would would, would not make a, a plane out of steel. I mean, that that would you know be a bit but but, but silly. Or not a plane that would fly. Right. <laughs> um, and and uh, uh, steel would also not be the first choice for for a rocket. Um, <laughs> although I should point out the early Atlas tanks were steel balloons. Um, but, 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 but for the most part, you would not make a rock out of, out of, uh, out of steel. So I, I do think moving to aluminum would be generally be a, a good idea. Um, yeah. Um, I was uh, actually presenting some work I did at, um, at a conference at Stanford. Um, and NASA actually saw what I was doing. They asked me to come over to the AIM Center. They brought me over there, and they tasked me on a project to build a genome synthesizer for Mars, which is kind of a crazy, crazy story. Um, so I just moved here to La Jolla and actually started a company called Cambrian Genomics. Okay. We're actually, uh, a couple of days ago, I met with Craig Venter and the entire team there. 
um, originally uh, they were they contacted me in Korea, and uh, it's part of why I dropped out of school to come come here and start this company and work with Craig. All right. Right. So Craig, you know, he started. He made the first synthetic cell, right, from completely synthetic DNA. Right. So the the company I started uh, is called Cambrian. It was started with George Church at Harvard. Both of us came up with these light-based dev- devices to get DNA off a next-gen sequencer, right? So the synthesis that we do is, is massively parallel. The sequencing we do is massively parallel. And then we use laser uh, as a serial capture process. We can capture about 100 base pairs every second, two and, seconds. And can you steer this towards a question towards him? Yeah. Anyway, so my, my thinking was basically that people weren't very interested in going to Mars for the simple reason that it's a bunch of red rocks and it doesn't look very interesting, and they've seen lots of pictures of it on the television. Well, it's definitely a fixer upper of a planet. I agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> right. So if we, could, if we could go there, potentially do something interesting and have people do, you know, make interesting things on, for the planet and terraform right. maybe small parts of it. We could we could do something maybe a little bit more interesting. Have you do you have any plans? I know your original plans were to do the greenhouses, but maybe we could do it without the greenhouses, right? Um, well, I think I think long term it's possible to terraform Mars and make it uh, much like Earth. Um, but but that that's sort of a long term project um, that that may take a few centuries. But in the meantime, we need to to have uh, established cities on Mars, and I think that would require sort of domes and and and, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, uh, but, but that's the only way to, uh, only way to go, I, I, I think. Um, and, then, and then over time, you, you know, uh, we can terraform it. And, and then I think there could, there could be a role for specially designed microbes in, in that scenario. It, it, it's tough right now for Mars because it's, it's quite cold. And, um, you, you know, well, it's sort of, it's not super cold. I mean, there, there are times at Mars where it gets above freezing. Um, but... but uh, you know, you don't have the same UV protection that you have on Earth um, or, or the same cosmic ray protection. So you, you kind of need to fix a few things about the planet, I think, before it's really going to be feasible to have microbes that, that could, you know, live outdoors on Mars. So uh, the kindly Mary has said that we should have a few more questions from her. Yes, so, so if you are willing. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Amory Lovins, right up here in the front. I'm just curious if either of them wants to enter into this conversation. I want to pay tribute to something that Haslin at Tesla that I think has some important implications. Uh, your chief engineer, J.B. Straubel, is an old and dear friend of mine. Yeah. And the original Roadster had a problem that the gearbox blew up when it tried to meet the acceleration and, and speed specs simultaneously. So JB had the neat idea of getting rid of the gearbox, getting more power out of the motor. And his colleagues said, well, then the motor will overheat. We'll have to band-aid on this Baroque cooling system. Uh, so he said, no, we'll figure out what's getting hot, and we'll give it a bigger cross-section or a higher conductivity, and we'll tweak the software and power electronics to match. And Correct me on this, but I think the result was something like no gearbox, 10 miles longer range, 14 pounds lighter weight, less noise, less maintenance, uh, much lower manufacturing cost. Everything got better. So the moral of that story was that uh, there's a lot more flexibility in the software and power electronics design space than in the Baroque Victorian mechanical arts and that the ability to exploit that flexibility probably goes more to the small agile company than the big rich company. 
Now, you may like to know that when I told this story to the chief engineer of one of the big automakers who had been saying electric traction will never make it in the market, internal combustion engines will rule for another half century, within a few weeks, he gave an interview in the trade press saying he changed his mind, and now he thought the future of traction was electric. Okay, great. Uh, and I, I think this is a very interesting example of the kind of uh, mind-bending that, that goes on in the kinds of small entrepreneurial outfits that, that you have started. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the search for intelligent life on Earth continues, but some really promising specimens are turning up just when and where we need them. Thank you. So I think we have a microphone way in the back. So you've had a remarkable entrepreneurial journey. And my question is just, where do you draw the bounds on your entrepreneurial vision? Do you, for instance, see yourself as, if you get someone to Mars, are you going to be its first real estate developer, for instance? (laughs) Uh Um, Well, I think you... SpaceX is going to be focused on, um, trans- on, on the problem of being able to transport large numbers of people and, and cargo to Mars at, uh, at an affordable, you know, at, at, a, at, low, at low cost, very reliably. Um, kind of like the, you know, the Union Pacific sort of, uh, you know, but, but then I think that will enable a lot of um, opportunities um, for, for entrepreneurs on Mars. Um, uh, but we still, you know, if, if we can enable all sorts of opportunities there, then I, I would count that very successful. Um, so we'll just do the things that other people don't don't want to do. Um, but um, but I think you know, step one is getting there. And if you if you can't get there, then it, it doesn't matter. Um, and uh, I mean, if 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 people couldn't get across the Atlantic, there would be no uh, United States. So before we thank. Elon Musk, which we all will do enthusiastically. We'll have, have a minute of stage visits. We want to thank Merrill Lynch. We want to thank Chevron also for its patience and big-heartedness in, the, in this session in, in particular. <laughs> we, want to thank, we want to thank UCSD. We want to thank the Atlantic's event staff. So now please join me in thanking Elon Musk. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.